I'm delighted to be able to uh, add to some of the conversations so far in the last couple of days. Of course, speaking at this stage means that many of the things I was going to say about social cohesion have been said. Many of the things about civil society have been said. And when it comes to volunteerism, I think we've been talking around a lot of those issues. Certainly last night, we had a lot which was very clearly focusing through, through the um, presentation we had from Elizabeth on exactly who volunteers. We got a much better picture of that. I've not been in my job for that long. I've been in it for 10 months. And what I really know about is social care, particularly social care for adults and for older people. I do know something about volunteering, having been a volunteer myself for many years. But there are others who are going to be speaking who are going to say much more about what volunteering is like, both what the programmes are that enable, the government is developing that enable us to try to promote the idea of volunteering, and Sarah will later be talking about that, and then how to do it and what are the very practical ways, but also the passion for just getting up and going there and doing it, which Elizabeth Woodless is going to be talking about later. So what I thought I'd do was bring some of my experience from a number of different worlds to think about what is social cohesion, why do we want it, why do we need it, what does it mean, how does that differ from ideas about civil society, and how do all of those differ from ideas of voluntarism? Indeed, what is voluntarism? Is it different from volunteering? Is it a movement? Is it an ideal? And indeed, can you be an accidental volunteer? And some of the questions I want to ask are about how we can understand the experience of volunteering within communities, within society. And the thoughts that I'm going to be talking about start with one that came from Susie Leather. Um, you will know Dame Susie is the chair of the Charity Commission. And for a piece of work that I'm going to be talking about in a moment, about how do you create trust in society, I was asking Susie what she thought about the idea of social cohesion. And I was really struck that the answer she gave me was that what social cohesion is about is the idea of forgiveness. It's the idea of allowing space, of giving others the benefit of the doubt. In effect, it's about the idea of trust. I then started thinking about some of the civil, civil society and the institutions of civil society, and whether or not what they do is enhance or diminish trust. Many of the debates about civil society talk about engagement in the political and democratic life of a country. They talk about the key institutions, such as political parties, trade unions, but also the institutions of society such as charities and other not-for-profit organisations, of sports and social clubs, of social enterprises and cooperatives. And I think that these are not necessarily the only way of looking at civil society. And I do want to look at some of the uh, ways in which civil society can be supported by measures that promote trust and ways that that can be undermined. <laughs> and I also wanted to look at voluntarism. And I, I've been very struck recently by some of the work and some of the debates about people who, when I was in the late 60s, early 70s, what might have been called a community activist, are now being called volunteers. 
And I'm not quite sure what the difference is, and I'm not sure what it's about. And I'd like to understand that a little bit more. For example, groups such as Mothers Against Gun Crime, and women such as Barbara Dunn of Mothers Against Knives, are they civil activists, or are they volunteers? The young people who took to the streets of Islington and are still there, talking to other youngsters about Ben Kinsella and his death, and the need to put down knives. Are they engaging in positive community action? Are they volunteers? Or what? I've been talking to those young people quite a lot because that happened in the street next to where I live. And so I'm going to say a little bit more about that experience um, in a few minutes. But in trying to decide whether somebody is a volunteer or a civil activist, does it depend on what they do? Does it depend on what they say, how they do it and say it, what outcome they're expecting? What is it actually about? Can we understand that? And does it matter? When the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, looked to the support of what he called robust voluntarism to support him in some of his campaigns, he brought in people who would help. He brought in people who had experience of working where it was assumed the state had failed, and that some individuals who were seen to have produced fundamentally different results in people's lives were brought in. The difficulty with that is it doesn't always stand up to the scrutiny of democratic accountability. And I think someone like Ray Lewis, is very, it's very clear that someone who has had a very effective life as in the voluntary sector world was not able to operate for all sorts of reasons within that of democratic accountability. So what is the place for what's called robust voluntarism within democratic processes? And a final example is someone called Jackie Schneider, who in the way of all newspapers describes her as a local mum. What she was actually is, as well as being a mother of uh, a, a family of young children, she was also a school teacher and, and uh, an educationist. She became very involved in campaigning about school meals. She became what The Guardian called an accidental activist. They then, in a later article, described her as a national campaigning force. And later still, they described her as someone who was coordinating volunteers because she'd got 600 volunteers promoting improved nutrition in schools. She an activist, an accidental activist, a local mum, a volunteer, volunteer organiser or what? And again, does it matter? Well, the reason I think it matters is because your analysis actually then determines the sorts of um, solutions that you try to propose, the policy outcomes that you try to create. And to look specifically at uh, social cohesion as a starting point, I think it's really important to understand with that one whether what we mean by social cohesion is something which is regarded as a response to a lack of cohesion, to the breakdown of society, or whether what you see social cohesion as being about is something which is creating the glue what Geraldine Peacock at another point talked about charity and voluntarism as being the glue of society, a means by which government can engage with citizens through different means. 
She described charitable work and voluntary action as a way in which the citizen will choose to engage with the state. So is it about something which has broken down, or is it something that is a glue? And hasn't necessarily broken down, but is an essential requirement to create the sort of society that we want to live in. There are times when debates of social cohesion are strongest. And one of the reasons for that, I think, at the moment, is because there are some issues and concerns about people who feel or are described as feeling outside society. But I think we should take some warning from a debate, which is what my various bits of paper are about, uh, which has been in the Times in the last few weeks. I don't normally run my life by debates in the Times, but I think it's absolutely fascinating that uh, early in July, um, David Cameron was challenged by the Times to say what he stood for, to say what he believed in. And in a, an opinion piece, he said, amongst other things, the aim of the Conservative Party is nothing short of building the good society. We will be as radical in social reform as Margaret Thatcher was in economic reform. And why? Because our society is broken. Crime, drugs, incivility blight so many communities. Society is broken. What's really interesting about that is not, I think, he said it, but that Times came back and had its leader the day before yesterday saying, is society really broken? The Times came back and said, no, it is not. Society isn't broken. There are parts of society where there are difficulties. And what he's, um, but rather that telling talking up the rhetoric of a broken society tells only part of the story. The Times leader goes on to say, there's never been a time when our society has been richer, people lived longer, been more tolerant, guaranteed women greater opportunities, cared better for the sick and disabled, or done more to provide education for all. Yes, there are problems, but society is not broken. And they go on to say that David Cameron does a all at his service by suggesting that it's broken. And the reason they say that matters is because it could lead him into the wrong solutions to crime and poverty. And that's why it matters what your analysis is, whether it's a society for which social cohesion is something that we are constantly striving, that it's something which is there, which is the glue, which at various times re-emerges and at times diminishes, or whether it's something which is about a fundamental break. In some ways, I try and think of this as a debate between two worlds which have been going on in, in the world for social care for a very long time. Earlier this week, Stephen Bubb referred to Robert Putnam, someone many of you will know about, but I guess not all. And I see the debate at the moment as being a little bit about two, two views of what cohesion is about. There's the Robert Putnam view, and what I think of as the Julia Neuberger view. And I'm just going to get some water. <coughs> the Robert Putnam view, I mean, for those of you who know this, I, I apologise, but 
There is a sense from a, first from a series of articles that Robert Putnam wrote, and then a book that came out in 2000. It's called Bowling Alone. And Robert Putnam's thesis was that it's about America, but that America is declining. It's declining because of the lack of social capital. And that he talked about how Americans have disengaged from political involvement, that there's been decreased voter turnout, public attendance at meetings has reduced, that serving on committees and working with political parties has reduced. Now, I think that actually that's changing in America, and I'm certainly not convinced it's the picture here. He does talk about the lack of trust in society, the lack of trust in institutions. But mainly he talks about that although people are still engaged in activities, they're doing it in individualized ways, and he uses bowling as an example, that people no longer in the States bowled in leagues, but rather they went and bowled alone. I suspect they actually didn't bowl alone. I suspect they bowled with their family and their friends. It's not a very good game playing it on your own. You can practice that way, but you can't actually do it. And one of the criticisms of the Robert Putnam approach is that he seemed only to be looking for the formal institutions, even of informal society. He looked for the organizations that were obvious, the clubs you join, the bodies that you sign up to. What he didn't do, and there's been considerable criticism of his work, is to say that what he noted was that indeed many traditional organizations were in decline, but that membership in community groups was rising. That the ties, the new social ties, were not immediately visible to the observer. One of the things I take from that is firstly, he was writing this before Facebook and the other social network sites got going, but also he was doing it, I think, not falling into the trap that many people fall into, and certainly policymakers fall into, as if you can't see it and you can't count the numbers of members, it doesn't exist. It doesn't allow for the notion of engagement as a movement. It doesn't allow for the notion of engagement as something that develops. It may become formalized at a later stage, but isn't necessarily formal for a very long part of its existence. On the other side from Robert Putnam, I, there's what I, Julia Neuberger, who I tend to think of as the tigger of social co cohesion. Julia bounces around all over the place, coming up with amazing ideas about championing volunteering, about developing social cohesion, and about developing society. One of the things I think that's really interesting about the work that Julia's been doing, both before she became a champion for the government and since, is that she focuses very much on the informal and the unseen, as well as the seen. And I think that that's a very interesting base and a bit interesting in terms of trying to think through what are the policies that we might need to support, develop and promote social cohesion, civil society and volunteering. She is, I think, in the glue camp, and what she thinks of is not that the whole of society is broken, but rather that the glue has ceased to be quite so sticky, and we need to do a few things to reactivate that. 
I've got three examples that I'd like to give of social cohesion arising at a time of social need. The first is Ben Kinsella. Two other young men had been knifed in Islington in the previous months, but when Ben Kinsella was killed two and a half weeks ago, a number of interesting things happened. The first was that within minutes, and by the next morning, a Facebook site had been set up, and many, many thousands of young people, by the, within 24 hours, had signed up to that with notes of some sort of condolence. What they also did was they organised a march, and a march of about 600 young people through Islington happened within hours of the death of this young man. What they then did on the next corner to the one I live on is they set up what I think at first you'd probably regard as a shrine. It was a, a place where people could come and give their memories. Within a day, and by the end of the, the next 24 hours, that had turned into an advice centre. There are young people standing there talking to other young people about a campaign that got going literally overnight called Put Down Your Knives. Now that campaign had been around a bit before. But still, two and a half weeks later, there are young people who did another march later on through Islington who have been standing there at night engaging in conversation with every young person that passes and indeed some older people like me I've been talking to them, I'm one of these people who wanders the streets late at night walking my dogs. There's one great advantage of doing that is you get to talk to all sorts of people. And those kids, because they've been seeing me night after night after night, walking past, I've started talking to them, they've started talking to me. And it's really interesting. They're actually developing a whole voluntary organisation there where they are giving advice information. They've got leaflets, they've got information, they've got material. They've got websites. They've got contacts. Now that strikes me as an example of not only social action, but that turning into a form of voluntary action. I won't be at all surprised if they don't end up as a registered charity within a relatively short time. They certainly are attracting a lot of interest from people. And they are way beyond what you might call social action and protest. They are interested in and trying to develop solutions. The second example I wanted to give was one of an organisation called Muslims for a Secular Democracy. British Muslims for a Secular Democracy, rather. Um, this is an organisation that's been set up of British Muslims who, out of a crisis, the crisis of other Muslims, blowing themselves up in an attack on British society, felt that they wanted to do something very positively and very strongly about developing the notion of democracy and being very clear that they were being determined and influenced by ideas of secularism. Many of them are religious Muslims, but for a social engagement, what was important to them was that their religion was their background, their, their belief, but their social um, integration should be within a secular democracy. Quite a difficult and contentious thought within Islam. 
And one of the things that they've done is they've campaigned to create an organisation which is essentially about education, debate and dialogue. They decided they wanted to register as a charity. This was partly because in order to get the funding that they wanted to do, they needed to be a charity. But it was also because it was a way of actually demonstrating that they were very much signed up for members of British society, that they were going to use the institutions of British society to create the sort of framework for the debate that they wanted. It's an organisation I've been working with for a while and they, they are now a registered charity. It tied in very much with some work that the Charity Commission was already doing about looking at Muslim organisations. It was particularly looking at mosques and trying to work out with the um, Muslim community how can mosques, how can the teachings of Islam be worked through so that people can still sign up to the notions of governance, transparency, accountability, public benefit, and all those other requirements, including neutrality and objectivity of a charity. It's been a fascinating journey, and a very important one, because I think it is one which is saying that social cohesion and its institutions, and the ways of thinking about charity, the ways of thinking about volunteerism, the ways of thinking about society, need to be renegotiated, need to be rethought. And the third example I just wanted to touch on is actually out of a piece of work that I'm doing um, as part of a body called the Risk and Regulation Advisory Council. Um, some of you will know of an organisation called the Better Regulation Commission. I was the chair of part of it, which uh, produced a report, its final report on risk and regulation. In doing that report where we looked at other things around voluntary engagement and the voluntary sector, it became pretty obvious that one of the ways of thinking about regulation, need, that we needed to move beyond the debate which was about deregulation and better regulation to a debate about why need regulation at all. I've been a regulator for the last 13 years. I think regulation is important and crucial. I think it sets the rules of engagement for a society. I also think it can set the rules which undermine some ways of working together as well as promoting them. And out of that work, the Prime Minister asked seven of us to go away and do some work on risk and regulation. And I'm leading a piece which is on risk and communities. The idea behind it is to think through how do you create a society that next that can cope with whatever's thrown at it? How can you create a society, or can you even create a society, which has the resilience, the capacity, the strength to deal with whatever gets thrown at it? Whether in the 80s it was the HIV crisis, whether it's gun and knife crime, whether it's concerns about interfaith cohesion, whether it's poverty, whether it's other forms of exclusion. How do you actually create a society that can cope with whatever's thrown at it? And in doing that, we've been interviewing a number of people. It was actually through interviewing Susie Leather for that, that she came up with this notion of what was really needed was forgiveness. Because what Susie was saying was that the difficulty with a lot of engagements 
is that people assume that somebody is going to be blamed. That we as a society are going to be looking for scapegoats. And that therefore we are trying to regulate out of existence the potential for forgiveness. And as a consequence of that regulation, we're actually breaking down trust rather than building it. The framework of regulation, I'm sure, is intended to create trust. It's, we've had a lot of debates about contract in the last couple of days. It's about creating an exchange of, of responsibilities which enforce and ensure trust. The consequence in some areas appears to be very different. It appears to be, in fact, that it's breaking that down. Two examples I, that we've come across, as well as the, the discussion with Susie, which I found absolutely fascinating. One was in a town called Tilburg in the Netherlands. An insurance company in Tilburg decided to change the common presumption of insurance. Instead of assuming that everybody was out to con the insurance company and that all insurance claims had to be proven, they worked on the assumption that actually everyone who made a claim was honest. They made a presumption of trust. They then spot-checked, did sample to find out how many were not. And they found that dishonesty, cheating and fraud, fell by 25%. As a result of that, the local statutory uh, body that was responsible for social security payments decided to take the same step. And they made an assumption that if you claimed social benefits, you were entitled to them. And the first thing that happened to you was you got a check. The second thing that happened was you filled out a form to explain why you thought you might be entitled. And the third was some people were dealt with through spot checks. Again, the presumption turned to one of trust from one of mistrust. And again, the amount of fraud diminished entirely. Well, not entirely, but it diminished by about another 20, 25% again. Absolutely fascinating. And the Netherlands government is now looking at whether they're going to spread that out through the whole of the country. A complete reversal of the notion of trust. Closer to home, um, one of the examples that we looked at in, in the Risk and Regulation Report was that of um, Kensington and Chelsea, where they declared their streets to be naked. What's been interesting in KNC is that it decided that it was going to remove most street signs, most street furniture. It hasn't yet done it in the whole borough, but it's done it in all the major thoroughfares. And the point of that is that instead of people Instead of people relying on signs, external neutral signs, objective signs, to tell you to stop, or to beware, or to look out for someone, what you did is you had to make eye contact. You had to look at each other. You had to negotiate. You had to determine whether or not that was actually going to happen. Now, there are problems with it. And there are clear problems, and certainly there are many groups who have found this extremely frightening. There have been groups, certainly some of the disabled uh, groups in KNC have become very concerned about this. 
Cycling groups became very concerned about this. And what Kennedy has now done has gone further, and it's actually said that in certain areas in, Ken in Kensington and Chelsea, cyclists are presumed to have the right of way on one-way streets but going the wrong way. It's again an exercise in the engagement of people, in human contact, in trust. Now it will be very, very interesting to see how that develops. What they're talking about though, and, and, the, and the philosophy behind it, is that the planned streetscape will encourage what's called polite behaviour by pedestrians and by drivers, and it will support better use of the public domain. Now, I'm seeing Daniel Moylan, the uh, chair of the committee in Kensington Chelsea on Friday, to talk more about that, how that's working. I know how it worked for the first six months. It's now been going a bit longer. But isn't it fascinating that one way of creating civil society is actually to remove some regulation rather than to bring it in? Some way, maybe, to take away some of the barriers which we have assumed are ones which actually create safety, stability, and certainty. And by creating, by promoting uncertainty, you actually have to engage. Now, I'm far from arguing that this is going to work and it's going to work effectively, but I think it's interesting. And the final point I wanted to make was, given we need to think differently about what society, so, social cohesion is about, and be aware that our view of social cohesion and what we think we're trying to do in creating policies to promote it will depend on what we thought was causing breakdown or simply a renegotiation uh, of society, we will produce different policies and different outcomes. Similarly with civil society, we may well think that we're promoting institutions that will support and develop that. They may do, but they may actually act to undermine trust and the forgiveness, the giving people the benefit of the doubt that you might actually want to create an effective civil society. And finally, that when we see people getting engaged, when we see people taking responsibility, do we make sure that the institutions, the assumptions, the framework of negotiation, the framework of relationships is one that promotes that and secures it? I think it's really interesting that British Muslims for a secular democracy decided that they wanted to use the institutions of British society to formalise their volunteering. I'll be interested to see whether the group supporting uh, the, the Put Your Knife Put Your Knives Down campaign and the Ben Kinsella work in, in um, Islington do as well. They may, they may not. We've had some fascinating discussions over the last few days, and all I know is that it's rather more important to think about what it is we're trying to achieve, how we're trying to achieve it, and what the outcomes are that we're trying to create, and to recognize that some of the ways of thinking that we've been using, I've been in this business for about 30 years. Some of those have worked really well, many have not. I'm very excited by the idea of something which is about creating words that I know as a civil activist, as a community activist, that I would have used in different ways, but which are about love and trust. I'd have used those differently in the late 60s. I'm fascinated to hear 
the final comment that Cyril Chandler, the chair of Great Ormond Street, said to me when I asked him what do we need to do about regulation, is he said we need to remove it, we re need to replace it by love. As we know, all you need is. Thank you.